So we're out here in beautiful sunny Acapulco, Mexico for Anacapulco. I'm here with Mr. Sterling Lujan uh, talking about how to be a relational anarchist. So can you tell me a bit about the, the philosophy or the ideas that come into that? Yeah, I, could, I would be more than happy to do that. Relational anarchism is this idea that if we can build connections with other people, if we can leverage our empathy and our ability to use compassion while we're interacting with other people, we are already going to be on a path for creating anarchistic societies. In this philosophy or doctrine of relational anarchism, I have this idea that's referred to as the relationalist ethic. It's just a loose construct or idea that I considered within relational anarchism. And all it means is every time that we interact with people in a positive, compassionate, and empathetic way, then we are all already being nonviolent and non-coercive, which is exactly what anarchists are after. That's what we want to achieve. We want a stateless society, and in my mind, the best path to a stateless society or to the non-aggression principle, as a lot of voluntarists like to call it, then we can leverage this relationalist ethic and leverage our very human qualities, our very human features to get there. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. So. So it's 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 all about uh, building connections with others. Like, of course, in a in in a society without government, people would have to have to have strong communities so they can work together and and respect each other. So we can start building that right now. That's that's the idea, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there's another component to that. In order to build those communities, in order to form relationships, we have to have very good communication skills. And I think that a lot of anarchists currently right now seem to lack some of the basic communication skills because when they try to persuade or convince people of, of our philosophy or of their philosophy, it often comes across as hostile or very aggressive, some people would say. And I think that if we are able to understand our own emotional content, that's this idea of a, emotional intelligence, then we can also understand the other person's emotional content. We can help down-regulate their negative emotions, and we can find common ground with those people so that we can build the kind of anarchist communities and societies that we want to build. And I think that is of the utmost importance. So it's all about uh, prior to building these relationships, or in order to build these relationships, you have to have the communication, you have to have self-awareness in the form of emotional intelligence. And you also, another topic we can discuss, you also have to have an understanding of your own human neurology, right? And when I talk, what I mean human neurology is I mean we have to understand what triggers us, right? We have to understand this notion of the fight or flight response. And the fight or flight response is a human neurological mechanism that's left over from our deep evolutionary past. And essentially what, what happens when we get into an argument with people or we try to convince people of our philosophies and they get triggered and upset, their, their brain releases a neurohormone referred to as cortisol. And what happens? Cortisol floods the brain. And at high enough levels, cortisol can actually impair learning. It can impair human connection. And over the long term, uh, high levels of cortisol can be indicative of trauma and it can also damage protein synthesis in the brain. We need to take care of ourselves, I guess, in, or, in order to help other people? That's the... Yeah, absolutely. We, we, have to be able, we have to take care of ourselves, we, we, especially we have to have deep understanding. So I think uh, self-exploration is super important, and that right there will help us interact with other people to a greater deg degree and will mirror that relationalist ethic. It will mirror 
exactly those traits so that we can communicate better and that we can empathize better with the other person. So it's all a part of this cycle of communication, understanding neurology, understanding emotional intelligence. And to me, that's the key to building anarchist societies. The key is not using the, these really heavy-handed logical arguments, constantly citing the economic structures and problems with society. I think those things are important. And I think that's a, a different strategy. I think what we're doing here is a different method that is more well-rounded in, insofar as getting a whole different group or a whole different spectrum of people involved in anarchism who would be turned off by the other methods. Yeah, great, great. Yeah, well, that's a that's a, a lot of the time, like, I, I've fallen into this trap of having these internet debates and, I, and I, I, I present these logical cases and say, well, and try to find the, the contradiction through, like, a sort of Socratic method uh, and present people their own uh, their own contradictions, but of course, people don't really like seeing their their contradictions. I I I like it sort of when when people present the Socratic method to me, but we can't expect regular people to 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 enjoy being being pressured like that because it's not comfortable. Uh, so what can we do? Like if we get in, into a situation, I mean, especially in an internet debate, or if you're talking to to your family around the Thanksgiving table or wh whatever it is. How, how do you begin a, a conversation ab about anarchy or about freedom or limited government or anything like that um, in, in a way that's, that's going to be very communicative? Right. Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Usually how I – it's been a little different for me because I, ha I make videos online and so – and I also write a lot and do a lot and bring out a lot of material and content. So a lot of times people will come to me and they'll ask me about my ideas. And that's usually how conversations start with me. And usually when they start asking me about their about my ideas, I try to gauge how they come across to me, if they're receptive to those ideas or if they're more aggressive. And for the sake of argument, of course, we're going to assume that they're more hostile or aggressive. And so I read that. I pay attention to their body language. I pay attention to what in communication psychology we refer to as paralanguage. That's the inflection, tone of voice. I pay attention to their proxemics, and that just means how close they are to me or how far they are to me because that provides a lot of information about how they are internally, what their internal awareness is like. So I pay attention to all those things, and if I notice they're being real hostile, I just get, I sort of move away from the topic of anarchism just for a moment. I may say, I may. I may try to find common ground with them. I may try to find something that we have in common, maybe with what they were saying. It may have to do with anarchism. It may not have to do with anarchism. But it's at that point we can find common ground through using these different communication tactics that we can finally start to move into the realm of anarchism. And we may not even have to because, like I said, if we're already getting along in a peaceable fashion, they're already starting to understand anarchism on a subconscious level because they're, they're living it. Of course, that's not to say that Providing them with the logical material is also important. I do that too, and I think people should definitely do that. But also keep these communication tactics in mind. Learn how to approach people. Learn how to look for triggers. If we just get hostile with people, if we just get mean and nasty with people, it's going to trigger that fight-or-flight mechanism, like I said. And if we don't know how to downregulate people and work with that, we're basically going to turn them off to the philosophy overall. They're going to think we're just super huge assholes, and they're not going to want anything to do with us. So that's the... That's the method that I take and what I try to do to accomplish freedom.
Yeah, it's it's kind of a complete reversal because you said you get people to come to you, so you can you kind of put the put the honey out there and get and get people uh, interested. Yeah, that's a that's a really good thought. It reminds me a lot of people have actually come come to me not just because of the anarchist content strictly that I put out, but also the compassionate communication content that I put out. Matter of fact, one guy found my compassionate anarchism page. And he just acknowledged how we were treating each other in the Compassionate Anarchy page. And then he started to sort of consider the anarchistic ideas from this more compassionate and empathetic angle. And he just absorbed all the other anarchist ideas naturally. And the next thing you know, he was a full-blown anarchist by way of compassion and empathy and human connection rather than this nasty, vitriol hate speaking, hate, uh, basically the nasty hate that is occurring altogether and that is causing a lot of people to be turned off to anarchism in general. So that's how this individual found me, and that's I just think it's such a positive thing. We should focus on that. Yep, yep, absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, I guess a lot of people get caught in this trap. Um, my, my friend Katie told me when she was converted to an anarchist, this guy would just uh, beat beat her over the head with it for like a year, talking about economic arguments or s- saying things like, "Well, you don't have a right to water or food or something like that," or it's the, <laughs> uh, and that's uh, that's totally the, for a lot of people, that's totally the wrong way to go about it. So uh, by yeah, but like you said, by form, forming common ga- ground, forming connections, people are going to be open to this message. Uh, so let's talk about uh, psychedelics. So where, where did psychedelics and, and other substances uh, play a role in this? Yeah, that's another great question. My experience with psychedelics are really what created this whole relational anarchist movement in my mind, or this whole relational philosophy. Earlier on in my life, I tried MDMA, which is technically not a strict psychedelic. It's not a classical psychedelic, but it is a quasi-psychedelic. It has some of those features. And one of the things that MDMA taught me very early on, Kurt, was that I can actually love myself. I can have self... It it gave me self-awareness. It gave me self-empathy. And I started to finally care about myself. And through the process of learning about myself, by looking at myself from this sort of bird's eye view on the MDMA experience, plus acknowledging that everything around me was absolutely beautiful, absolutely fucking wondrous. It was just a whole amazing experience. And it was that inspiration that really brought, in the end, brought out these relational anarchist ideas in me. And I said, why can't we model this experience in everyday life? We've already have... The, the natural chemical receptors in our brain, the neurotransmitters in our brain that MDMA works on. And that particular neurotransmitter is serotonin. Serotonin is responsible for the mood, wake, and sleep cycles. And also, our le- speaking of mood, our levels of ha- general happiness and joy, and it also acts as a, what they call in the neurology a neuromodulator that controls the release of oxytocin. And oxytocin is the compound that's like the human love drug that's in our brain. So when, and even whenever we make, we make love, we have intimate relations with other people, this compound is released. So 
on the ecstasy experience, all this is taking place on a neurological level. And so we already have those compounds. And when we get close to people, our serotonin levels heighten. When we have good relationships, our serotonin levels heighten. Oftentimes we have release of oxytocin. And it's through this process that we make connections with people. That it's all that, and those connections are always going to be antithetical to violence because these are not the hormones and the neurotransmitters of violence. So this is the direct relationship between neuro, neurochemical psychology and pharmacology being the MDMA experience and relational anarchism. So there's a nice little bridge, I think, there. And all I'm trying to do is bring that experience into philosophy and then into the practical world using these tools that we've just been discussing. So you're saying that we can, to it, to an extent, we can reproduce the, the highly, like, intensely empathetic experiences of ecstasy uh, by, by using touch, like, like hugging people. And uh, are, there, uh, are there other methods? Right. Yeah, I think there are other methods. Let me touch on that, that first comment you made first. I don't think it's really difficult to reach the peak, the height of the MDMA experience in real life because MDMA triggers an, a dump of all serotonin, all active serotonin in the brain. And I don't know that it's neurologically possible to do that without the chemical. However, we can engage in things like meditation and we can use other types of psychedelics that also affect some of these similar neurotransmitters. And we can also come to those levels as well, but maybe not to the same extent. But that's how I would say that we do it. And that's, that's really my thoughts on that matter. I hope I was able to answer the question on that. If not, we'll... Yeah, that's good. That's good. So, so yeah, touch, touch and meditation and, and, and yeah, then there's the drugs. Bonding. Yeah, I was going to say bonding and human connection in general will always work to keep these levels high. And that's another thing. These neurotransmitters, will, when they're high like that, when serotonin levels are a bit, a bit elevated, and when there's oxytocin being released, all these things are also antithetical to depression and to other what they refer to as clinical mental health problems. So it, it definitely keeps us happy and keeps us stable. Uh, another thing is, yeah, like you're, you're talking about mental health problems. So uh, this, I, I had an experience with mental illness. Um, I was diagnosed as, as psychotic, uh, and uh, I never took, the, took antipsychotic drugs, even though they, they told me that I would need to take these things for the rest of my life. And it turned out, you know, they were completely wrong. So I have to wonder how, how common that experience is. Am I just an anomaly? Or is that something that's a, that's a trend in the psychiatric industry? Or do you have some comments on that? Yeah, you mean about not taking the drugs and kind of being able to come out over the, the experience, right? Yeah, like about using talk therapy or the support of peers or uh, meditation or any, any other method to, um, to, to get you back on a more functional path. Right, yeah, perfect. I can answer that question. There is actually some research evidence that suggests for acute psychosis, and acute psychosis would be sort of the initial or like a what they call a prodromal phase of, uh, of the oncoming or onset of schizophrenia. And there's actually a form of therapy called dialogical therapy that was really created in, it was in Europe, if memory serves. It slips my mind at the moment. But the form of therapy... It is just based on strictly 
talk therapy. It's a network-based approach that uses a couple of counselors, and they actually their goal is to actually go in with an acute psychotic client and then allow that client to speak freely. It's a form of open communication and also what they refer to as polyphony. Polyphony just means there's a multitude of voices in that network environment. It means that everyone can talk, but everyone also is supposed to listen because it's open communication. And generally what happens is the person who's experienced psychosis actually gets to release a lot of their, their inner experiences and their feelings and why they are ex- expressing this, this psychotic experience. And for some reason, they're able to overcome those experiences with their family, with their net, with the network, with their support systems, whoever's in that. And they all start to have an understanding of the situation. And that actually causes, it's really those connections and that empathy and the relationships that are taking place in that counseling environment that reduces the psychotic symptoms over time. And there's research, several research studies that have been done on this. And you can look into it on the Dialogical Therapy Networker or the Dialogical Therapy website page. Just type in Dialogical Therapy and it'll be one of the first couple of websites that come up. So that's one of the major, that is the major talk therapy or a form of psycho group psychotherapy that actually has been shown to reduce psychotic symptoms and help abate schizophrenia. Now there is one other thing that I want to mention that's interesting about schizophrenia. A lot of times the psychiatrists will claim that it is a a biological brain disease that is always going to be affecting someone's brain and that there's no real cure for it, right? So it's, once you have schizophrenia, you have schizophrenia. However, there's some evidence that conflicts with that. And this evidence is some people actually go through the process of spontaneous remission of the schizophrenia symptoms. And I think the famous mathematician who I think he worked in game theory, was his name John Nash. I think he recently passed away. The movie A Beautiful Mind is is based off of him. He was a schizophrenic, and I think near the end of his life, or closer to the latter half of his life, he spontaneously remitted some of the schizophrenic system or symptoms and was able to live on his own. So you have these... It seems obvious to me. The point is, is that we can get out. We can't escape from those symptoms. We can get outside of the scope of schizophrenia without taking the mind-numbing, mind-deadening psychiatric compounds that the psychiatric industrial complex feeds us on a daily basis that act as chemical straitjackets or chemical lobotomies that mostly are are toxic to our bodies and just toxic overall and are horrible compounds that I would personally never recommend. Well, I do remember with uh, with Nash, uh, he was a bit upset about the movie because in the movie they portrayed him taking pills, but in real life it wasn't the pills that, that helped him get better. Uh, yeah. Uh, so he's, he's, an, he's an idea. So, um, well, one thing is, uh, I, I, don't, I guess I don't really like the term mental illness. Do you, do you have another term that's more appropriate? Yeah, I like, there's a term that a famous psychiatrist he was the a sort of an anti-psychiatrist psychiatrist, except he didn't really like the term anti-psychiatry. His name was Thomas Saws, and the way that he expressed these symptoms, these, these behavioral issues that people suffer from, were as problems of everyday living, right? And, of course, it feels like with the psychotic symptoms, it goes beyond that. And my personal position is that these are 
forms of stress responses a lot of the times, either from stressful environments, stressful, especially stressful environments in our childhood, when we're, when we're growing up, if we've dealt with abusive situations, we've dealt with problematic people in our lives, a lot of times it'll cause what these, these symptoms, quote-unquote, and I really hate to use the medical terminology too, but that's, that's a close... These experiences, we'll call them experiences, tend to crop up in people, and then they have the behavioral, the behavioral components of those experiences. And I think a lot of it's just a, a form of traumatic tra- stress response for many of them, or it's a problem of everyday living, as Thomas Sauls pointed out. The term mental illness is naturally going to be an erroneous term because mental refers to the mind, right? And a disease or illness refers to something that is malfunctioning. And in terms of medical science, a mind could never be malfunctioning because a mind is not a physical tissue. It's not a biological entity. And this is what Thomas Sauls talked about. A mind can't be sick that would be like saying that somebody has spring, like there's a such thing as spring fever. Like during the spring, you get a certain type of fever. But the, the issue is a mind cannot be sick. A mind is just a metaphor. It's just a description of the human processes and how we interact. A brain could be sick, though. You can use tests to, 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 to figure out if, say, you have neurosyphilis that's eating away your brain. And other tests for other types of organic issues like brain cancer. These types of issues could be labeled as objective medical problems, whereas there's no, like, for instance, in schizophrenia, there's no actual physical evidence that schizophrenia is a thing. That's why it's referred to as a mental illness. But a mental illness can't exist in this regard because a mind can't be sick. A mind's not a biological tissue. Right, right. So, yeah, so not exactly a mental illness, but a, a stress response. So... Do you think with uh, with a, a lot of people b- believe in the state, and b- by saying this, the state, I mean uh, an, an organized system of, of violence ag- against innocent people, ar- an arbitrarily violent system. Um, so pe- people believe in the, this sort of thing, and it, I wonder if they're they're um, well. For one thing, their their belief in this violent system is a kind of stress response. And for an, for another thing, if this kind of uh, po- polyphonic talk therapy that you describe could be used to to help these people and guide them to more of, of, of a peaceful w- way of living or thinking, yeah, absolutely, I think it is because some people actually describe statism and government as almost a schizophrenic response to a very traumatic environment that we all live in. So, and that actually is a, almost a whole new insight for me, the way that you characterized that and brought that up, because if anarchists take on the responsibility of being social therapists, sort of social healers, and using this mass polyphony in order to create change away from the symptoms clusters that people are experiencing as they attempt to relate to the state on a, very, on a day-to-day basis, well, that right there in itself could help to start mitigating the, the urgency for a state, at least on a subconscious level, on a relational level, on the way they interact with people, and naturally bring people away from this desire and this urgency to use violence on a regular basis, or that is initiatory violence on a regular basis, to harm other people and their property. One thing is uh, about Terence McKenna, he had this this uh, this little speech talking about the, the role of a shaman 
And so from his perspective, at, le at least at one point, was uh, a, a shaman is like a, a, a technician for a television. Uh, our, our society or our cultural beliefs are like this television. Everybody's watching it, but only the shaman can get behind and fiddle with the wires. So uh, what, what you're doing is, is, is similar in a way, like you're, you're a sort of psychological shaman. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that is definitely the case. The only way that I would differentiate myself from a shaman, and maybe not even completely so, but in the shaman's tool bag or toolkit in tribal communities, they would often use trickery and shenanigans in order to elicit a response in people, especially if, the pe if they had fed the people the psychedelic medicine and they were working on discovering where objects had been lost or what the weather was going to be in a few days but the shaman also had this sort of trickster response and some people have even referred to this as the the shaman being kind of a sort of a fraud to some degree and that that is probably true of some people's where it's not as true as other people's and the shaman so it just depends i wouldn't be associated of course with that element of shamanism but I would definitely be associated with the element of shamanism that tries to uh, leverage whatever tools we can leverage to get people thinking about their own internal awareness, thinking about their own empathetic responses, thinking about life in general and how they relate to the community at large. So in that sense, I would be sort of a psychological technician in the sense of getting more people involved in looking at relationships on a microcosmic scale, if you will, and interpersonal scale in order to bring about the freer society. So it's a little different than the traditional, of course, the traditional voluntarist methods, which are based more in Western civilization, ideas of discourse and using logic and reason in order to persuade society in that manner. But that's not all there is to the game, right? We also have an understanding that human beings have hearts. We have a depth to us. We have complexity to us. And all of this depth and complexity is really tinged with our emotional worlds and so that's where that's where the the crux of the matter really is in my estimation yeah great uh yeah i get that's uh, that's all i have so thanks so much stolen it's it's been a pleasure meeting you and and having this conversation with you absolutely kurt i'm i'm finally glad we we've, we've had conversations online and we've got to talk and you've commented on my posts i'm finally glad we did get to meet in person here at beautiful acapulco at one of the greatest conferences we could all possibly gather at. So it's my pleasure, and thank you for having me, sir.